podcast. I'm James Batchelor and this is the first in a special series of podcasts delivering audio versions of some of the best sessions from our recent GI Live online event. This week's session is with Guha Bala, co-founder of Velen Studios, which is currently developing the upcoming multiplayer dodgeball outing Knockout City. The session was hosted by our head of B2B, Chris Dring, and is also available on our YouTube channel. Now, over to Chris. Hello and welcome to GI Live Online. My name is Chris Dring and I run GamesIndustry.biz and I'm excited to be hosting this keynote session. We've got a real games development veteran with us today, a founder of two major game studios who has worked on some of the biggest franchises, not just in games, but in entertainment, Tony Hawk's Spider-Man, Star Wars, James Bond, Skylanders, Guitar Hero, and most recently, Mario Kart. And now he and his team are gearing up to release a brand new IP uh, called Knockout City, which is a multiplayer dodgeball game, which is being published by EA. So please welcome the president of uh, uh, Velan Studios, um, Guha Bala. Hi, Guha. Uh, hey, Chris. Thanks for having me. No, thank you for coming along. I mean, the game is not far away from release now. And how has it been? You've been doing some public tests. How's it all been going? So, so far, so good. Uh, you know, there's never a smooth process in development. Uh, from a Knockout City standpoint, we had our first uh, closed beta. We had our first beta public test in uh, February. And uh, it was uh, relatively limited in scale, about uh, 13,000 users in Western Europe. Actually, they came from all over, but we only had servers running in Western Europe, uh, US East and US West. Uh, but it was awesome. It was so good to see uh, players play. It was a relatively limited scope of the game that we made available, but it was so good to see sort of uh, relatively large compared to our internal tests, pool of real users in their homes play. And Knockout City has some really special net code involved in it to enable the types of things that we wanted to do. Uh, and it all held up. It was pretty okay. good. The match, skill-based matchmaking works. So within two, three games, through two, three matches, you started uh, getting really good sort of uh, ma- uh, skill-based matchmaking happening between different regions and so forth. And so, you know, our goal is with skill-based matchmaking to give you close to 50-50 odds of winning. So it makes the matches tight, exciting, enables clutch moments, and really allows team skills to come out uh, and that kind of thing. So so far, so good. So we have a big one coming up, at, at least at the time of recording. It's still in anticipation of this date. It's going to uh, run on April 2nd through April 4th. So when all of you are watching this, uh, it would have already run. First, my hopes and dreams are it will be uh, big, well-received. The game will hold up well. People have a great time you know, doing it. Uh, the actual release is slated for May 21st, so it's not long now. Uh, and we'll have a lot of announcements coming up between now and then on the game. Um, as you would have noticed, the April 2nd through the 4th beta is actually a full cross-play beta, something that's very unusual. So you'll be able to play it all the, uh, all the way from a PS5 with backward compatibility and Xbox series, backward compatibility uh, to a Switch and a PC. Um, and uh, that wow. should be a great experience. Wow. That's, I'm more looking forward to it. And we'll, maybe we'll come back to talking about it in a bit. I've always liked to start with these things by um, talking about sort of your career, um, because I, I think a lot of people in the industry might know who you are, and I assume they do, but uh, uh, how did you get started in, in, in sort of video games? It's been, you've been in it a while now. Where did you begin? You know, um, I've had the odd experience of never actually applying for a job. Um, 
for us, I uh, started for me and my brother, really, because we've been working together since we were kids. Uh, we started in video games because we met an entrepreneur when I was in ninth grade. And my brother was in 10th grade in high school. Uh, we met an entrepreneur. He'd started a company in his basement making sound cards in the early 90s. For the, it was called the Gravis Ultrasound. And uh, they came up with a process called wavetable synthesis to do MIDI samples for PCs. Uh, and it was going to substantially elevate the quality of sound cards. Now, we met him. He was in our hometown of Rochester, New York. Uh, he had quit his job from Kodak to start this company. He met us and he said, what do you like to do? And my brother and I, we'd always engage in creative projects, short films, comic books, just writing them, creating them. And we said, well, we also like games. And he said, well, you should make one. And he handed us a Turbo C book and the Autodesk animation package and said, go learn how to do this. And we said, hey, we're just kids. We, don't, we have no idea how to do this. Now, keep in mind, there were no uh, real internet resources to do it at the time. Mm. You know, I got my email account much later, uh, you know, when I was going into college. Um, and, and there was no tutorials. Schools weren't teaching this. So it was very much cottage industry still at that time. And so we made the kind of the trite mistake that all students do, which which is along the lines of, well, so how hard could it be? I guess we'll get into it. We'll find out. And within a few months, we'd have made a game. It took us five years to make the first game. We didn't know the first thing about making games, but the process of being creative and making a digital experience was so fascinating. We were big game enthusiasts as players, but we thought you know, making them was just, it's like peeling back an onion. It's so fascinating, every aspect of the creative. So that's how we got started, 1991. Uh, we came up with the name Vicarious Visions because we were on our way to our first business meeting. We needed a name for the company. And my brother had spelled Vicarious wrong on his spelling list the prior week. I said, why don't we use that? And we said, yes, let's do that. And so we went into our first meeting, uh, naming ourselves Vicarious Visions. And then we learned what that meant afterwards. And it, and it worked out. Um, it, it was really a, a, an interesting start. I started off as an artist. Uh, and uh, we, we have better artists working for us now. But I started off as an artist because that was the thing to do to get all the graphics and stuff like that done in our game. Do did all the drawings. We worked side jobs. We hired artists that were local to us to contribute into the work. Uh, I went to the local Kinko's FedEx office to scan our work and, uh, and, and to other businesses that actually had scanners and we couldn't afford one at the time. That's how we got started. And, and then I guess you fell in with Activision um, quite early oh, well. on. So you know, fast forward a few years later and, uh, you know, we made our first game. We uh, published it in um, 1996, so five years uh, later when I was in college. Um, and uh, we thought to ourselves, we had so many opportunities coming out of college. What are we really passionate about? And it was this thing that, you know, and I'm sure every indie developer could relate to this. There are a lot of reliable career paths. Indie development is not one of them. But so it has to be a passion. It has to be some kind of devotion to the creative work that drives you. And for us, it's like nobody's telling us to do this, yet we're spending all of our time doing it. So clearly, this is the right answer. It may not be the secure answer. So we did that. We became indie, we were indie developers. We decided to do that after college. And we quickly found that to be a creative enterprise, you also have to find a customer that's willing to support you along the way for doing that. And uh, a lot of the games that we were making at the time were original IP games, PC-based before, you know, Steam was really anything, before there was efficient distribution. Um, and so it was really hard to get them out. 
it's really hard to finance them, get them published, things like that. But we did find an opportunity with Game Boys because Game Boys hadn't been really actively worked on for several years. First came out in the late 80s with the Game Boy Black and White. Then Game Boy Color came out. It was being handled by one or two man shops, taking a couple of years to make a game. And there was suddenly a demand due to the release of Pokemon, you know, for Game Boy Color games. So we said, oh, that's a problem we could tackle. So we really focused in around that and started to make pretty good games for the Game Boy Advance, became one of the prolific developers, Game Boy Advance titles in North America. And that's actually how we got in business with Activision. We actually did business with a wide variety of companies. Um, after getting to Game Boy Color a little bit, we got into Game Boy Advance and we launched Tony Hawk's Pro Skater 2, which you know I know you dug up a copy of that yeah. uh, recently, for the Game Boy Advance uh, and made really 2D or 3D uh, gameplay work on a 2D system. You know, fundamentally, uh, it was a very technically limited system, but Nintendo has a philosophy around exceeding with it uh, beyond technical limitations on very limited hardware. So I've always had that perspective and we found that fascinating. And so that was a sort of a central mile marker for us. Uh, we did lots of work, you know, over the following few years, different types of games, a lot of licensed products, some original as well. Um, and a few years later, around 2004, 2005, we really saw a pattern emerging where our games were getting bigger. The number of publishers that were at the time available, a lot of distribution was dominated by retail. So you needed to have a large portfolio of titles to get shelf space. It was really a shelf space game. To get into better and better quality game making, you had to work on bigger titles, more resources, and there were fewer publishers able to get distribution. Um, so we saw that as sort of like either you go broad and go to simpler games or you go narrower so we could really deepen our skills and capabilities. We've always been motivated by making, you know, as high quality as we can make with special innovation angles and taking risk against those things. And we saw a fit. We saw a fit with Activision. We'd been in business with Activision for about five years at the time. We'd made several million unit sellers and back then million units was a lot of, a lot of game copies. Uh, you know, with them. Uh, and uh, there was a really good culture fit too. You know, in a sense, uh, we'd work with every publisher out there. And at the time, um, you know, we, we had a great working relationship with Activision. We had a good business overlap with them as well. So we said, hey, why, why don't we look at them for as a partnership? And, um, and it really worked out. You know, so we uh, sold our studio to Activision, became part of their internal independent studio model at the time. Uh, and uh, became part of their senior studio leadership team. Uh, and we grew Vicarious Visions over the following 11 years until 2016. Uh, and over that time, we did a lot of Guitar Hero games, Skyliners games, and more Tony Hawk games, and you know, a bunch of things. Uh, and uh, in 2016, we left. That was our 25th anniversary, you know, dating from 1991, uh, from the start of Vicarious Visions. And we said, um, you know, Activision super at the types of games that it makes. But what we wanted to do is return to being inventors. An invention, true invention in large integrated firms is actually really difficult. And it's difficult for a variety of reasons. And so we said, well, let's take a different look at discovery. Uh, and we have to do that as an independent. You know, We wanted to do a few things that weren't predicated on being independent, but they really aligned well with doing it. One is, going after play ideas that people weren't experimenting with. So there are very few comparables out there to tell you, uh, hey, this is how much a product could sell or there's an audience for this thing. 
uh, a play experience that's fundamentally fresh. Being able to put uh, uh, you know, our own skin into the game, take our own risks with it, because it's only when it's easy to take risk on other people's money. You don't really get super disciplined about what you're trying to do if you're taking risks with other people's money. So you have to have skin in the game by having our own skin in the game. And often you need to have a novel pathway to market, to market and distribute a new kind of experience. And so being able to control that piece as well. And all of these things are actually quite difficult to do in a large integrated firm because those firms tend to focus on more predictable franchises or categories, even with new bets that have ready comparables for what the sales would be. So it's either, hey, look, let's extend more of what we have, or there's a category out there we want to be in. Here's what's selling. We're going to take market share away from somebody else. Um, so that's what most integrated firms do. And they have a value delivery uh, um, system that's already pre-established. So it's like, hey, we publish mobile games or free-to-play mobile games, or we're into premium games, and that's our dominant mo uh, model, or we're a free-to-play HD company. Company. And their entire value system, value delivery system is organized around that. So those are the games that you're going to make uh, in those sorts of system, uh, those sorts of organizations. That's the sort of innovation you're going to come up with. So having a really open-ended discovery platform was going to be difficult. So we set out to make different kind of company, uh, different type of uh, discovery company with Valence Studios. We didn't actually have any ideas in mind. We just thought this would be a better approach to discovery. Uh, at the time. Uh, and uh, the other part was we'd always, you know, through the course of our work over the prior 25 years, always identified ourselves as entrepreneurs. You know, we were, we'd started our company, we'd work with lots of entrepreneurs, entrepreneurs were our mentors throughout. Um, and uh, we wanted to return to being that again, and also helping other entrepreneurs. So we started Valent Ventures around that time to make focused sort of investments in game and game related technology companies. Uh, so we could, again, put some of our capital to work for us, but importantly, get back into a community of entrepreneurs where we're paying it forward. Anyway, that's 2016, and it's now five years ago. So we've been at it for a few years. Yeah, I was, I was, you've, you've rattled through my sort of uh, questions. I was going to sort of lead you through your journey, but there we are. You're <laughs> sort of taking us um, all the way from Vicarious. And it's, cause it was, must have been quite a brave thing to do, really, because Vicarious Visions is still a strong studio. You know, I played their Tony Hawk's game last year. It was amazing. And now they're doing stuff with Blizzard. So, you know, you didn't walk away from something that was that was bad or, or in trouble. Or, or it, you, 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 you sort of 11 years you'd worked there with Activision and before that. So to sort of step away from that, even if you know you might have felt that you were going to be successful in whatever you did, it must have been quite a, a wrench, I guess. Well, you know, it's it's a super interesting, um, you know, it's a sort of thought process that we had to go through. At least it was interesting to me, I guess. Um, the first thing is, I think we knew several years ahead of time that at some point, what my brother and I, what we wanted to do as individuals was going to be different than what was going to be right for both vicarious, but also aligned with Activision strategy. Because your life changes, your goals change. You know, what you want to do next changes. So it's less important to focus on what's right for us and more important to focus on how to make what we had built a durable, lasting uh, entity, uh, not only for Activision, or the profit margins or whatever, but for the people that we had built up in the, in the studio uh, and you know, hopefully some sense of legacy for us. So a lot of the investment that we made um, you know, from 2010 onwards was in developing the leadership team uh, 
so they could really take it on and grow to the next level and make their, you know, really they didn't need us, you know, after a point. So I think that, um, um, you know, we made a concerted effort to do that and have good succession plan, which I think, you know, so much of video game um, leadership is celebrated around the individual leaders. There's a hero culture, like all of our games have heroes in them. The, uh, the most common narrative technique, whether it's an action game or a, a story-oriented game, is the hero's journey. So naturally, we celebrate our, whether it's our studio leaders or our game directors, as these kind of visionaries that can lead us into the future. But it's really the next level down and the dozens or hundreds of people that make that magic work. And so we wanted to make sure that we stepped away and said, okay, it's not just about us. It's about, okay, well, what else, what else can we do here to share whatever insights that we may have had, but bring up that next level to take it on? And, and they've done a superb job, you know, especially at Vicarious Visions, they've done a superb job. So proud of the work that they've done since uh, we left. Um, and it gave us the freedom to really ask ourselves, what do we want? And step away. Because it wasn't more predictability. What we wanted was to get out of our comfort zone. Yeah. Like I get, you know, on a personal level, I get very, I get very uncomfortable when things seem a little routine. Yeah. When, you, <clears throat> when, when the future looks totally planned and predictable. So I don't gravitate towards that. Yeah. So I was able to do that and step away because I felt like, hey, uh, VV is going to be okay. And probably going to be even better. Yeah. Well, you obviously had some big advantages in sort of going indie because, you know, mm -hmm. you, you've learned a lot of lessons, you've got all that experience. You also had a contact book that I'm sure was everyone would dream to have. But you told me sort of before this that actually there were some downsides that you found going from a big integrated studio into being an independent side. So what, what were those things? What were those downsides? It, you know, actually, it's not as it's, it's obvious when you if, if I lay it out for you, it'll sound very obvious what the downsides are but it's not obvious when you're going through it. So the first one is, hey, like you go to all the conferences and you, know, you do your presentations and uh, you meet lots of people inside a large studio organization, large integrated firm. But you don't quite realize how much of your time, unless you're in a business development function and de dedicated, whether it's at Activision, Electronic Arts or Take-Two or you know, any large firm, you know, frankly, how much of your time is spent navigating the internal organization? And most leaders will spend, you know, somewhere between 60% to 80% of their time, which is a lot of time, um, just navigating the internal organization of their parent and not in front of consumers and not in front of business partners uh, that are external to the, uh, the enterprise uh, and not really even with their products which is bizarre, right? Because you think, hey, you know, studio, you really need to work on your products the most. But you spend so much time getting alignment between your commercial teams and your marketing teams and even the green light process. Like every large firm has a, a, a sort of a staged evaluation process. Sometimes it's called green light. Sometimes it's called critical stage review. There's different names for it, but it's all the same thing. You know, what do you do a prototype? What do we do to, for the next round of investment? And you spend all of your time understanding, how do I get to that next little milestone? How do I get for the commercial resolve? How do I, what is the model that I need to maximize? What's aligned with our strategy as a company? And that is actually um, the right thing to do in that environment. 
but you are a, a sort of a zoo animal at that point. You don't really know how to succeed in the wild. You spend very little time on, okay, well, you know, look, I mean, my balance sheet, what does it look like? Is it big enough to sustain the types of risks I'm going to under, undertake as an Indian? Uh, what does my PL look like? What does my payroll look like? Uh, what, are, what are risks that we really need to have gumption to take right now? What do we, what do we need to believe based on, and, and what do we need to convince ourselves to believe in this investment? Uh, and these are the things that are go going through indie developers' heads. Um, like, it's, it's one thing to be by yourself saying, I'm going to live on noodles for the next three years. But if you have a team and you're responsible for that, you're thinking about these things all the time. And it's not as apparent when you're in a large firm. You may be doing hundreds of millions of dollars of revenue in, the, in a large firm and never have to touch a P&L, really. You look at them, but you don't ever own the P&L. You don't ever own the downside of your mistakes. And that's just a very different mindset altogether. And so when stepping out of the, really the comfort zone of being in a large integrated firm, you have to relearn a lot of those attributes. Getting the prototype, how can I do it in thousands of dollars, not hundreds of thousands of dollars? Um, when you're starting a new studio, you're building a team at the same time as maybe an engine, is maybe a concept as well. And that team that you're building new is going to look different than the teams that you left behind. So what makes them tick? What, what determines product velocity? How do you even find magic? Because magic is as much a, far, uh, a factor of the ideas as it is a factor of the team that you're building, which is not yet built. So these are all things that you relearn. And it took us a little while to get it. Um, we spent a little too much time behaving like we used to do. But I mean, maybe that's just part of the learning process. Oh, yeah. I mean, but I remember speaking to you back when you, shortly after you started. And, you know, you were talking about then about finding the magic and you're talking about mm -hmm. AR technology, which, you know, you ended up working on, talked about doing new things and invented things and Knockout City and Mario Kart. You know, they seem to fit into that quite a bit. And it looks to me, it's only been three years, really, in that mm -hmm. since we last spoke and you're already doing three and a bit years um, and you're already doing these things. So I... I, I it looks to me from the outside, like, you know, you had this vision and this clarity and you sort of went through it and you sort of delivered it. And I'm sure there were things behind the scenes that made it a bit tricky in there were moments, but it, it look, at least it looks like you had a plan and you followed it. Is that, is that right? Or was it, was it not quite that way? Well, I mean, I, I don't think, I think all stories clean up over time, right? I mean, I, I think anyone who's honest about their story would say, well, it was a lot messier in the process than it turned out, especially if you're successful. Like if, if it doesn't work out, then it's sort of like, ah, you know, a hundred things went wrong. But when you succeed, the story is typically not, ah, a hundred things went wrong. And they do. Uh, the, uh, I think that we, we did do a few things right. Uh, one was we had a rough plan and directional as opposed to a very precise plan as to exactly what we're going to do and when we're going to get it done. Um, we had a lot of confidence about what we're trying to do. Maybe for some good reason, but they're not all good reasons, right? I mean, we just believe that we could get this done. And uh, that is like the worst thing for a business plan, right? I mean, nobody wants to go on belief alone. Uh, but, uh, but we really believe that, you know, uh, my brother, me, the handful of people, really just three or four people that we started with at Balance Studios, we're like, look, who else is going to do this? We're bringing these, uh, 
there's lots of stuff going on in augmented reality, in robotics, in machine learning. There's it, it, a list of buzzwords, right? But when you look beyond the buzzwords, there's really interesting creative activity going on technically on those things. And if we dig into those, I bet we could play with it and come up with new play ideas that are compelling. We just have to give us enough, uh, give ourselves enough time and runway to find them. So it wasn't an idea of like two years from now, according to a production plan, we'll have a product out. Actually, it's, it's, it's kind of funny. If we had said from when we first started the prototypes for Knockout City in 2017, actually Mario Kart Live in that, in that year as well, exactly when they were to come out, we'd be like, oh, that's too much work. That's too complicated. Let's just, I, we want something to come out next year. But the idea was that, um, we knew we could be successful. We didn't know exactly in what, in what manner and over what time frame. We just needed to get a good group of people together um, and work around sort of a problem set in an area with promise that we know we'll find something. We didn't know exactly what it would be. And if we take that approach, we're not gonna fail. We just, that is not an option. We would not let ourselves do that. And I think that was just generally the mindset. And if I go back to my high school self, it was sort of the same way. It was like, hey, you know, I mean, we're just going to work on it until we succeed. So uh, I think that, uh, uh, you, you know, the fact that we did do something from a competitive MP game or from augmented reality, those happen to work out. But if we hit a wall and that end there, we would have said, OK, what are the what are the other things to experiment with? Let's go to work on those. OK. One of the things I do remember you saying was that you were going to try and stay relatively small. And mm -hmm. I think I think last time you told me it was you were 85 people now. Is that right? Is that right? Yeah. yeah. So uh, uh, what changed? What changed there? So I think that um, so it's all relative, right? Uh, so we're always smarter than somebody else. Uh, but uh, but I think actually um, in terms of actually coming up with good ideas, having small teams of uh, small teams of people that really bring curiosity around an idea or an opportunity area uh, that are thinking about it from different angles and can also build it. So not just dreamers, but also doers. Uh, this kind of combination is, is super important. They could crank through a lot of prototypes with a high velocity and uh, you don't want the structure and the management issues associated with a large team when you're doing that kind of early stage R&D and prototyping, the kind of the finding the magic bit. But when it comes out to actually making it, you do need a larger team. So we, we're not a prototyping company as a discovering company. We have to make it, we have to build it and ship it. And, and, and the idea is evolve it with a community. So really even shipping it is only a point in time. And there's a, a reason for that it's um, when you're creating something very fresh and new, you kind of don't know exactly how right you are or how wrong you are. You want to be about right with something that delights. And then you find out the rest when, when it's live and then you can shape it and, and tune it and, you know, that kind of thing. So with 85 people are, you know, we wrote a whole new game engine for Knockout City and Mario Kart Live because there are key latency issues that we have to deal with that no conventional game engine could offer us. But that core tech team is only 10 people that wrote it for both. So getting the right people uh, is everything. Um, that are curious about an idea, that are the right combination to go after an area, that the team that prototyped 
Mario Kart Live was super curious around computer vision and augmented reality and mechanical uh, systems. That's what they wanted to work on. And we said, there's something there. I don't know what it is. Let's go find it. And the team that worked on Knockout City, super curious around competitive games, um, fighting style mechanics. It's not a fighting game, but fighting style mechanics that give you a different type of competitive feel. And if we can accomplish that in an action game, that would be really cool. Um, scalable online systems. So that's what they were passionate about. So that's what they went after. Oh, well, I, and, well, it seems to be working out so far. I think so far, the. So good. <laughs> <laughs> well, the, the, so one of the things, and I'm, it's just, it might seem like a stupid question, is, but obviously, one of the big things that's most notice, noticeable is that you partner with some major companies, you know, Knockout City is EA. Um, that was announced quite a while ago now, actually. And then uh, a bit out of the blue was the Nintendo Mario Kart Live sort of home tour thing. Um, didn't see that coming. Um, I was as surprised as anybody and we've chatted loads. So well done for keeping mm-hmm. that secret. Um, but um, working with Nintendo is a particular rare one for any Western studio, let alone one that's not made a game before. Um, and one that gets trusted now with one of the, probably their most treasured franchise. Um, and I'm sure you've been asked this before, but what's the secret to making those, to, to sort of, to making that happen? Uh, I, th- I think there's a couple different things. One is that, um, uh, you know, and the, there's probably, it's not, it's not really much of a secret, frankly. It's, um, the, the first part was for both Knockout City and Mario Kart Live, there was an extensive process that we just prototyped on our, by ourselves. We were just trying to find interesting game mechanics that could be really, um, you know, one, simple and accessible, like people get it right away. Um, you know, something that if we made it could not be easily copied, but also something you could build a community around and then scalable, something that actually if we had a breakthrough, you know, something that, that could actually appeal to a lot large group of people as well. And so... For Knockout City, it was 18 months of prototyping around an idea of throwing and catching because games aren't being made about throwing and catching. And there's a lot of good reasons for that. <laughs> like, it's actually a really hard problem, <laughs> as it turns out. But it was just 18 months of prototyping without really knowing, are we going to get it? Are we going to do it? Like, meaning, is, is there a there there? Like we had some promising steps along the way, so it wasn't a total blind bet. But at the end of the day, if it doesn't feel good, there's no plan or IP development or story that makes it work. It just doesn't feel good. There's nothing there. And the same thing was true with the early prototypes that we had for Mario Kart Live. It wasn't with Mario in mind. It was just with, we saw something in drone racing with FPV goggles and, you know, it's really fast moving mechanical objects. There's something so immersive about that and compelling about that. And the point of view was something just different than what we experience. That we do, and the real world connection made it that much more compelling than, you know, pure digital words that we're immersed in, that there was something there. So we just started with that. And once we felt like we found something that really had it, then we had the control over. And you know, the fact that it was Nintendo and EA has a special relevance in the sense that there's probably no single company that could have housed both of these concepts. Mm-hmm. Like, I mean, you know, the point about, you know, how they deliver value and their creative mindsets and stuff, are just so quite different between 
where the EA, where EA products are and where Nintendo products are. Like Nintendo doesn't necessarily do large large scale competitive MP games that have server authoritative, um, you know, quite in the manner that EA does. And likewise, you know, the companies that do hardware and software bets on a dedicated basis uh, with with IPs that could back it up, you know, it's, it's just you know, the people that even take risks around brand new ideas like that are relatively few. And so uh, we just reached out to partners to see, yeah, is there a fit uh, here? Uh, is this a potential opportunity? Actually, the more important part of that was, are we crazy by ourselves to think this is a good game experience? Because each of these would offer a really interesting perspective on, you know, we could get the simple and defensible part, but is it really accessible and scalable? Can we get somebody else to believe in this vision with us? And that was actually the more important litmus test. And it has to happen in a relatively straightforward manner. It can't be like, a, hey, we've got a revenue hole we need to fill. It has to be a, this game needs to be brought out, you know, type of feel. Uh, the part that's a little less of a secret is that, you know, for us being at it for, for a little while in terms of game making, you know, since the Game Boy Advance, we, I think we've been on every launch of every Nintendo platform since then. So we built a relationship with a company over time uh, where um, we can, we actually took a concept to them just to get their feedback, just say, hey, what do you think of this? And that's how conversations start. It's less of a business plan, if only I could get a deal, my business will be successful. That's not it at all. Uh, the proof is in the magic of the idea and then just doing it over a period of time and just staying focused with that kind of general principle where partners, you know, become apparent. I'm sure there'll be lots of indie developers that are eager to, <laughs> to get their idea. You know, I think that uh, it, it, it's a hard road, right? It's a super hard road. It'd be a lot easier if they're just re people ready to sign a check, you know, or something like that, or just believe in your vision. But there's no simple road like that. Well, you are also, you know, you mentioned at the start, you also invest yourself um, through um, VLAN Ventures, um, VLAN Ventures. Um, uh, is, is, is the side, is that sort of, is the venture side of your business, is that about looking for the sort of things that you'd also make as a studio or is it looking for something that's actually the opposite to that? Uh, well, with VLAN Ventures, the focus is um, on working with uh, sort of, entrepreneurs that work with game and gaming related technologies. So we had a pretty broad thesis for it. We did actually didn't start it as an institutional venture fund, which was a potential opportunity. Uh, and partly because we didn't want to spend all of our time raising capital and then deploying capital and working on three to five year exit opportunities and things like that. We wanted to really just work with the entrepreneurs. So we, the, the current uh, operation of Bell Ventures is more as more of like a family office combined with an investment syndicate the people that invest with us. Um, but we look for uh, uh, game entrepreneurs that have a really interesting angle on gaming principles. Sometimes it's in areas like healthcare. We found really interesting concepts in uh, um, helping uh, uh, a user cope with a condition like ADHD, ADHD by using game, game mechanics to develop focus for example. So there's a lot of applications like that in healthcare or in simulation and that kind of thing. Sometimes you find it in games. Like we made 
an investment recently in a company. The entrepreneurs are Greg Lopiccolo. Greg, who some of you may know, ran product development at Harmonix for many years. And Tom Leonard, uh, who's been in various companies, including uh, Valve uh, and Amazon uh, and Microsoft. Um, you know, he was a game, game lead, game director for Left 4 Dead, for example. These guys have a company called Tonestone, super interesting company. It's an early stage company, but their concept is um, music composition for the masses, music composition for creators like social media creators, like you have a TikTok video. How do I make an original music competition, uh, composition for that? Music composition is hard, but they use gaming principles to quickly teach how to uh, take samples as well as originals uh, content and mix it into entirely new compositions that are right for you. And it was awesome, right? I mean, it's in this case, it was very similar to the way we look at ideas for Bell & Studios. Uh, I, I said, you know, look, I mean, I, they were, your PowerPoint's kind of interesting. Let me play, let me play, because I need to feel the magic uh, to invest. So I did. And within about 15 minutes, I was making tunes. And I'm, I'm, though I worked on a lot of Guitar Hero games, I'm not a musician. Uh, and I'm certainly not a composer, but I was composing things that sounded really good to me that I would be ready to publish within 15 minutes of going through a couple of the tutorials, but there's actually a whole gaming progression involved in this to take you from beginning to advance. And the magic is there. I mean, the software is not finished, but you can feel the magic and, and the actual potential. It's around the concept again of simple, defensible and scalable. You know, composing music for yourself and as a creator. Um, it is a simple, simple to get. They use a methodology that's similar to uh, what was used previously at Harmonix, and they, they have some tech that's licensed from Harmonix to do it. So it's easy to get into and easy to start composing. It's defensible. Uh, they have some unique IP related to it. And the composition system relies on a set of capabilities that's unique to the team. And it's scalable. It's really a universal fantasy of composition. So whereas Guitar Hero is unleash your inner rock star, this is about, hey, Everybody can be a composer and create stuff that sounds really great, you know, for their, uh, for what they do. So that's an example of a super interesting company that we invested in, you know, for Valen Ventures. Uh, and in that regard, it does have a very similar mindset to how we find the magic in Valen Studios. You know, for me, at the heart, I'm still a, uh, I still love to work on game creation. That's what Valen Studios is about. But Valen Ventures allows us to reach out to other gaming entrepreneurs that are trying to do the same thing. That's brilliant. <clears throat> well, I'm very, uh, I'm, I look forward to, I would love to be a composer. So um, I'm interested. Well, you should try Tunstone. I can get you a bill. Yeah, you know? please do. Please really do. Cool, I'm really sure awesome. you're going to get a few more requests for that as well. Yeah. Um, I'm conscious of they the have time. a great Discord community, by the way. So I think, uh, I'm not sure if they're quite ready for that, but I mean, they have a growing Discord community for that. And I think the composition is just awesome. It's a good oh, way wow. to participate in software and progress. Oh, wow. Well, I'm, I'm very conscious of the time that we've got um, because uh, we could talk for hours, I think. But I guess I guess if I was going to wrap things up, um, there are a lot of indie studios watching this right now. They're probably either starting up or they're trying to work out what to do next. I'm sure they've been inspired already by some of the things that you've said. But what, what message would you give to them? What, what one piece of advice would you hope they take away? Uh, I think in terms of single piece of advice, uh, it is being devoted to finding the magic before you put all the bells and whistles on your game. And uh, if you can do that, if you can um, afford it, meaning sometimes you afford it by keeping the team small, 
Sometimes you afford it by saving a nest egg. Sometimes you try to get some investment into it, but if you do that before you find the magic, um, then you can find yourself really working against a clock that you don't want to work against. Uh, but devoting yourself to finding the magic first and then putting it in, whether it's a controller or a mouse and keyboard or whatever your input device is, glass as the case may be, uh, putting it in somebody else's hands and getting the peer feedback to validate it, being devoted to that process can really unlock a lot of opportunities. And I think getting to that point, you know, if you can get to that point, there are so many ways that you can get support to get your product to market. Uh, and once you've gotten to that point, if you don't get that feedback, to take it as honest market feedback for your stuff, that might be the single biggest uh, advice that I can impart. That's certainly the approach that we take from Valen mm -hmm. Studios. That's all for this week. We'll be back next week with our regular news show. And next Friday, we'll have another session from GI Live. In the meantime, be sure to subscribe on the podcasting platform of your choice to find all our podcasts, including the Game Developers Playlist and the Five Games Of. And you can get more news, insight, and analysis into the world behind video games at gamesindustry.biz.